Welcome to the Faith Assembly Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message. This morning, we are going to continue a series of sorts that we started two weeks ago. And this series is really taking a deeper dive and a look into our belief systems as individuals. We really do know how significant more and more as we you know, go through time how important our thinking is. There's more study that's being done more than ever before, talking about our thoughts, talking about the things that we believe truly deep down. And, and what we need to do as believers is we need to be aware of our thought processes, of our belief systems, of the things that actually dictate how we do things, why we do things, why we believe what we believe. We really need to get down to the root of it. And today we're going to look at one really specific area but I just want to say this on the front end, because in our first service, we, we talked about this. And I really believe that there is so much that God wants to do in this area of our thinking and our believing. But it's not always easy. And I just want to tell you that on the front end, that the more that we take the time to confront some of our belief systems, some of the things that have been established in us, some strongholds maybe that have existed, it's one thing to see them. It's another thing to be able to address them and to actually change the way we think and change the way we believe. And we believe very firmly that this is an act of the Holy Spirit, but there's also something required of us, excuse me. And it's not always something we could do in one day. And so what I don't want you to hear me say today is, this is the problem, this is the solution, go home and fix it all. But I want us very intentionally to allow the Holy Spirit to come in and to address these areas. Because when we talk about our belief systems, what we're doing is we're talking about things that have been instilled in us for a very long time. And the best way that I know to be able to address our belief systems, to be able to identify things that we believe that maybe are not from the Word of God, that we've developed on our own, is to really hold them up to the light of the Word of God. If you're looking at a $100 bill, what do they often do? They take the $100 bill and they hold it up to the light. They look for the symbol, for the watermark, for the authenticity to say this is real. And so what we need to do in our thinking and in our belief systems is to take every thought captive, to look at everything that we believe, and we need to hold it up to the light and say, okay, is this what God says that it is? Or have I believed something else and I'm holding on to a counterfeit? Because in all of these things, what we really want to do is we want to get to a place where we are able to trust God so fully that we're actually able to step into that place of rest. That's what we talked about two weeks ago, right? We want to enter into the Sabbath rest that Jesus has made possible for us. Sabbath rest not just being a specific day of the week, not just being, is it Saturday or is it Sunday or, or as a pastor, is it Monday? no. Sabbath rest being that internal place of rest because I trust what he has said, I trust what he has done, and I trust that the work that he completed on the cross was a finished work once and for all. And because of that, I can, from that place of trust and rest, now do what he's called me to do. We have to get the order right, though, okay? So we want to be able to find any place that stands against our ability to trust in God. 
So we're going to look at a specific story here today to help us do this. This is what we're going to hold our belief system up against as we inspect some of our ways of believing. But what we're going to do is we're going to just quickly recap the four pillars of our faith. These are the things that, and you may have a couple extra pillars, that's great. But for me, these are the four things that we really need to know and stand on. So first we start with our salvation. It's all based off of what Jesus has done. He did it all. He paid the ultimate price, right? But then on top of that foundation, Christ is our foundation. There are four things that I really want us to look at, to grab a hold of, and to make our own. So number one, the first thing that we have to see is that you and I are known by God. You and I are known by God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Number two, you and I are loved by God. We're not just known, but we are loved by the creator. Number three, I, you, we are called. We have been called by God. And finally, number four, I have been equipped by God. I have not just been called to do something. I have been equipped by my Savior. And so as we go through this story, we're going to look today at number one, what it means to be known by God. What are some of the things that stand in the way of being known by God? And how are we called to look at ourselves as a result of what he sees and what he knows? Still with me today? Okay. Okay. Just in case you're not, we're going to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 9, and we're going to look at a story about an individual we know well named Saul. Saul gets a bad rap for a good reason. Saul is the guy who, while David is going to fight Goliath, he's hanging out in the background, offering all the stuff that he has, somebody else go fight my battle. He's the one that's constantly chasing after David because David is up and coming. Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. He hears this. He doesn't like it. There's a lot of stuff being stirred up in him. He throws the spear at David. He chases him down. He hunts him down. This is what we know about Saul. But the more that I spend some time reading the story of Saul, the more that I start to see a little bit more than maybe what has met the eye initially. When I read the story of Saul, sometimes I actually start to feel bad for Saul. And maybe for you today, as we're reading this story, you'll start to hear some things that make you think, hmm, maybe I'm a little bit more like Saul than I thought. So we have to start this story off by looking at chapter 8. Long story short, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people who he's led out of Egypt, they are now in a place where God is their king. Samuel is the prophet. In a long line of judges, he's judging the nation, and the people go before Samuel the prophet, and what do they say? We want a king. God, I guess, is not good enough. We want a king. We want a man, just like everybody else has. I don't want to make a joke about that. So they say, we want a man to sit on our throne. And Samuel says, well, first of all, he's hurt. God comes to, to Samuel and says, don't worry. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. Samuel says, okay, God says, I'm going to give them a king. So Samuel goes before the people. He tells them, listen, it's not going to be all, all roses. It's not going to be what you think it's going to be. The king is going to require a lot from you. He's going to take your sons and your daughters. He's going to take your resources. This is not going to be the setup that you have now where you're looking to the almighty God. But they said, nope, it's all good. We want a king. So God says to Samuel, okay, I'm going to show you the king. This is what he's going to look like. This is how it's going to happen. So we get to 1 Samuel chapter 9. 
and we're introduced to a young man named Saul. And even in the first two verses, we learn a lot about this man named Saul. It says, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was, name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Apatha, a Benjaminite. I skipped all that in the first service. I should have done that too. A man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. I don't know how objective this author is. There's a lot of people in Israel. And he's like, this was the guy, the most handsome guy you could ever imagine. That was Saul. And if that wasn't good enough, he's also head and shoulders taller than everybody else in Israel. Okay? So we learn that he is wealthy. We learn that he is tall. We learn that he's handsome. Got a lot going for him. Then we continue to read this story, and there's this whole situation that God orchestrates so that the man Saul would come before Samuel. And verse 5 tells us, you know, kind of paraphrasing, that your father's going to get really worried about you because he really loves you. And he was out there searching for donkeys. And if you spend too much time out here looking for the donkeys, your father's going to be really upset. So let's add to the list. Not only is he tall, dark, handsome, and rich, the perfect profile on any dating website, he's also loved by his father. This is a really good, you know, set of attributes. If you're looking for a king, look no farther. Saul is your guy. So he now goes before Samuel and he has this interaction. And as we begin to look at this, we begin to see more about Saul's thought process. Because God now comes before him through Samuel, and he tells him that he's going to be the next king of Israel. And not just the next king of Israel, really the first king of Israel. He's the guy of all of Israel that he's going to choose to lead over his chosen people. The first king of God's beloved. But Saul, as we know has a little bit of a problem, especially in the way that he sees himself. The first interaction that we see with Samuel, Samuel basically says, listen, all of Israel is going to be yours. And he says, are you sure you're talking to the right person? 1 Samuel 9, verses 16 and 17. So we get to this point, and Saul says, am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans? Of the tribe of Israel? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? And I want to say at face value, this doesn't seem like such a bad thing. Maybe Saul's just a humble guy. I mean, when the angel of the Lord showed up to Gideon, he reacted much in the same way, and God won a major victory through Gideon. But more than just kind of being humble in his origins, what we start to see here is when he says that word least, it's pointing back to the way that he actually views himself. You see, he has everything in the world going for him, except for the way that he looks at himself. He sees someone who is much less than what everybody else sees. And what I think that we really need to see beyond that is that it's not just a place of insecurity. Because Saul has a fear at the root of all of this. And this fear is going to become clear as we read this story, but it comes down to a fear that he has of truly being seen and truly being known. There is something about Saul, because of what he believed to be true about himself, that he was constantly fearful of others seeing what he really believed and who he really believed that he was. Even with all that he had going for him, he could not see how God saw him. 
even though Samuel, the prophet, not just a prophet, the prophet that was prayed for by Hannah, brought to the temple, given to the Lord, none of his words fell to the ground. The prophet spoke over him, you're going to be the king. God has called you for such a time as this. And yet he can't see it. I don't know if you've ever encountered somebody in your life that you've told something to over and over and over again and they just couldn't grasp it. Maybe it's something similar to this. You think the world of this person and they just can't seem to see it for themselves. All they see is the lie. All they see is the inadequacy. All they see is what they are not. See, this is why I start to feel bad for Saul a little bit. He had everything, but in himself, he really had nothing because he didn't believe it was true. He didn't believe what God has said. Samuel says the nation of Israel will be his, and he says, no way, not me. But God continues to move down this path. He continues to work through Samuel to speak to Saul, and Samuel tells Saul, these things are going to happen You've been looking for your father's donkeys. You're going to go back. You're going to meet these people. You're going to do all these things, and they're all happening the way that he said. But we get to this chapter, chapter 10, verse 6, and there's this really notable verse in here that almost feels out of, out of place when we know the story. Chapter 10, verse 6 says, Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them. We know that happened. And you will be turned into another man. That's a major statement. You will be turned into another man. And then we get to verse 9. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. So you're going to be turned into another man, and when he turns his back, God gives him another heart. And all of the things that Samuel said came to pass that day. Saul's not just called into a great position. He's actually changed. This word in the Hebrew means to overturn. There was something inside of Saul that day that was overturned at the core of who he was. And I look at this, knowing the end of the story, and I say, how is that possible that something in him was overturned, and yet he still continued down that path? He still believed so much less about himself. How is this possible? But then I draw a parallel to what we read in 2 Corinthians where it says that we are a new creation, that the old things have passed away, that all things have become new, that in salvation, in that moment where we said yes to Jesus, we were given a new life and a new identity. You see, for Saul in that moment when God changed his heart, for us, when we accept Jesus into our heart, what it is is an opportunity to take our thoughts our belief systems, all of the things that we have brought to that point in time and to bring them into alignment with the truth of God. You see, we are redeemed. When we accept Jesus into our heart, we know what our destiny now is. But do we take the time to address the thoughts, the thinking, and the belief systems that have led us up to that point, or do we keep them off to the side and we try to marry the two, my identity in Christ and my old ways of thinking? see, very often I think that we do that. And that's what Saul must have done because his heart was changed. He was, he was being turned into a new man. And yet he couldn't rectify the belief that he had of himself with the word that God had spoken over his life. See, God calls us to be a new creation. And he gives us the grace that we need. 
I want to ask this morning that we would continually just be so open, even just as we're listening to this story, to the grace that we need, to the grace that's available to us to believe and to know what he says over us. You see, something cool about this is that Saul is not just called into a position. He's also given what he's needed, and that's the same for us, right? We say we're not just called, but we're equipped. We're going to get to that in a couple of weeks. But you would think that each step along the way that these things would give him more confidence because we get to verse 10, and it says, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul, and he prophesied amongst the prophets. This is not even the only time that this would happen. He's prophesying amongst the prophets. It's like, do you know, Saul, what's going on here? Do you recognize how God is using you in this moment? But still, he's lacking the confidence of who he is. He still has that fear that one day who he really is is going to be exposed. Somebody's going to see him for who he really is. They're going to, they're going to call him out. So every decision that he makes is based out of the identity that he has, not the identity that God has for him. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 20 through 24. He's been called. He's been looked at. You're going to be the king. And this is the moment. All these things are going to come to pass. So Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. The tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans. The clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, so on and so forth. And Saul, the son of Kish, was then taken by Lot. Okay, so not only is Saul called... He's told he's going to be the next king of Israel, the first king of Israel. He's anointed. But then this process of throwing lots, casting lots, stones that would represent different things, they go through this whole process and they take the whole nation of Israel. Imagine out of this whole room, you're the one that's chosen. But out of the whole nation of Israel, Saul is chosen. And he still doesn't know. Because when they look for him, they say, where's Saul? And where is he? He's hiding. He's hiding in the luggage. He's hiding because, well, we'll get to that in a moment. Verse 22, so they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. I just think it's funny that they need God to call out and be like, guys, he's over there. Go, go look for him. So they find him, they bring him out. Samuel says to the people, do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. You see, what I see here is a man who has been called, he's been anointed, he's had the oil dumped over his head, he's, he's gone through this process, he's prophesied, he's seen what God has said is true. And yet, when the moment comes for him to be brought into the forefront, he's hiding. Now what I see here is not just somebody with confidence issues. Not somebody who's an introvert. He just didn't like crowds. He's like, okay, you know, I'll, I'll be the king later once everyone leaves. I see someone who was afraid to be seen because he was afraid to truly be known. He was afraid to be seen by the people of Israel as their king because even though it had been spoken over him, this is who you are, he did not believe that it was true. And the fear was, if they see me, if they really see me, if they hear me speak, if they watch me walk, are they going to see what God sees or are they going to see what I see? Have we ever felt like that in our lives? Have we ever had that fear of if I go before them and I'm vulnerable, if I'm real, if I really show them who I am, what are they really going to think about me? And there is this fear 
of exposure. There's this fear of who we know we are because we know our faults, we know our shame, we know our guilt, we know our history. Well, if they see that, what are they going to think? See, any time in our lives where we have a foundation that has been built on a lie, built on a lie of inadequacy, everything that comes forward out of that point is going to be tainted, is going to be compromised by the thing that we've accepted that's not from God. And any time there's this place of inadequacy, what's always going to happen is we're going to be fearful of truly being seen because it feels like being uncovered. It feels like Adam and Eve in the garden. They sinned. They knew God was coming. What did they do? They covered themselves over like God didn't know. And we always do the same thing. When we have that feeling of inadequacy, when we believe that lie, what we constantly do is we cover ourselves over, we put the barrier there, we try to keep people at a distance, we don't let people in too close. Husbands, I'm going to call you out today because I'm going to call myself out. Sometimes this is us in our relationships. Honey, what's the matter? Nothing. Honey, what's going on? Nothing. What, what's going on? Uh, uh, everything's good. And meanwhile, we're overloaded overburdened, weighed down with the situations of life. Maybe just not wanting to look at it. But what happens is these barriers begin to exist. These walls are built and there's a separation from the people around us, the people we love, but really and truly that barrier comes between us and God. We try to hide our shame from God. We try to hide our failures from God as if he doesn't see all, know all, believe all, and yet know us and love us, died for us to give us a new life, we build these barriers. And what happens is when we build these barriers, we have to keep them intact, which means that we have to rely on our own strength, which means that we have to continue to go to the things that we think are going to bring us the security that we need. It becomes self-reliance. It becomes self-righteousness. And as we look at the life of Saul time and time again, we see that this place of inadequacy continues to bring him to self-reliance, and the self-reliance continues to move him further away from the incredible call that God had on Saul's life. Let's not throw away the call because he, he missed it. He was the first king of Israel, and yet he kept going back to his own ability. You see, the bigger the position, the more the exposure before people, the more significant our mask needs to be. The bigger the wound, the more that we have to try to protect it and cover it. This is the case with Saul and most certainly many times is the case with us. The thing is, though, is that when Saul is not hiding in the luggage, he's actually doing some pretty cool things. Like God is still using him. God uses him to defeat the Amalekites or the Ammonites. He uses him to win a key battle against the Philistines. You would think once again through the victory that God gives him, the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. He sees this victory, that he would turn to God and say, God, thank you for what you have done. I'm going to come into agreement with you. But no, he goes back to his own ability. We would think this victory would give him the confidence in God. 
And yet we see that time and time again he chooses to trust in his own ability. You see, when we are afraid to be seen because of who we think we are, we will often become afraid to be seen even by God. But when we say that I'm known by God, what does that mean? When we say that I I am known by God, it's not just that God knows my name. It's not just that God knew me before I ever took my first breath here on earth. It's not just that before you were formed in the womb, I knew you and I set you apart. It's that he knows us to the depths of who we are. And in knowing us to the greatest depths of who we are, beyond our even our own comprehension, that in that place of being known, in that place of standing before God, if we would be vulnerable, we would have the freedom to see what he sees. To know that he says that I know you, that I've called you, that I've created you, that I love you. That you are not just one with a purpose, that the God of all purpose, on purpose, has given you a purpose for a purpose. If we would stop and silence the other voices for a moment, what would we hear God saying to us? Because what I know to be true is that in the moments that I turn my face to him, in spite of the circumstances, In the moment where I draw close to him, no matter what's going on around me, it's in those moments that I begin to feel the freedom of the Holy Spirit inside of me. I begin to see things that used to look impossible look much more possible because I know who he is in spite of who I am. When I draw near to him and I begin to see him with greater clarity, when I begin to hear his words spoken instead of my own, when I begin to give those words the authority and the priority in my life, it's then that I begin to see myself in a different way. I want to tell you this morning, church, that God knows you. Anyone watching online, God knows you. We're going to get to the fact that he loves us next week, but let's just stop there for a second. Can we just think about what it means to be known by the God of the universe. We spend so much time in our flesh pushing and running and distancing. But for a moment, just stop. Think about this, that the God who spoke the world into motion, the God that breathed life into Adam's lungs, the God that that spoke you into existence, that he knows you. And contrary to what we may believe, he's not going anywhere. See, the more that we are known by God, and the more vulnerable that we would allow ourselves to be before this God, not allowing shame and anything from our past to stand between us and him, the more that we are able to receive the incredible, unfailing, unconditional love that he has for every single one of us. See, God loving you and knowing you is not in spite of your faults. It is in a way, but 
God will use every single one of those places that you're trying to hide from him and hold back from him. And he will use those things to be the very things that will give you the new life in him, that will bring you closer to your purpose, that will bring you to a place of being able to trust him like never before. Because if he's brought you out of that place, where is he going to bring you in the future? If he's been able to overcome everything that the enemy has thrown at you, what more does he have for you? It's so much more than you could ever ask. It's so much more than you could ever imagine. Will we give him the freedom? Will we be willing to stand before him and to be uncovered before him and to say, God, everything that I have, every hurt, every fear, every shame, every place of pain, every emotion that I've ever felt, every lie that I've ever believed, I'm going to give it to you instead of hiding it from you because I know that you can take the broken places and you can use them to make something amazing out of my life. We say this a lot, but you are not an accident. No matter where you come from, no matter what you've been through, no matter what your parents said about you, you are not an accident. You have a purpose. The way that God sees you It's not through the lens of what you've done wrong. When you accept what Jesus has done for you, when you are covered by the blood of Jesus, he sees the original prototype, perfection, the word that he spoke over you before you ever took your first breath on earth. And if that's what he sees, who are we to challenge it by thinking anything else? You see, it's not to say that Saul didn't have a real difficult thing in front of him. You see, when we look at this story, we realize that the the Philistine army that he had just defeated, they have gotten their troops back together, and now they were coming to battle. They had got everyone together. It says they once again were too much to count. And Saul, all that he hears is the fear from everyone around him. The Israelites are hiding in the caves. They're hiding in the mountains. They're crossing back over the Jordan River. The place that God had split the the sea once again or the river so that they could walk across. They're going back and they're hiding. And Saul goes back. He goes back into that place of reliance on self. And just to make this long story short, he waits for Samuel. Samuel doesn't show up in the time that he thinks that he should. He takes matters into his own hand. The fear of being exposed is too great for him. And it causes him to take matters into his own hands for protection Because he fears that they're going to see what he really sees. See, at the end of this, Samuel says to Saul, Saul, though you are little in your own eyes, has not God called you to be the one who would rule over Israel? That word little is the same word that Saul uses to describe himself. It's the same word that he uses to say, I'm the least. And Samuel says, what has God said about you, Saul? What's the word that he has spoken? 